Welcome back. Today, I'm honored to be joined by Dr. David Goodman Meza, Assistant Professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases at UCLA. Dr. Goodman Meza's interests include the epidemiology of HIV and sexually transmitted infections in high risk populations, biomedical prevention of HIV in people who use substances, and improving infectious disease related outcomes in people who inject drugs. Today, Dr. Goodman Meza will be explaining the infectious complications of IV drug use. Thank you, Dr. Goodman Meza, for being with us today. Thank you. I'm super excited. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Me too. So when we talk about infections related to injection drug use, people often think about HIV, but there are several other viral, bacterial, and even fungal infections uh, that people who inject drugs are at risk of contracting. So I thought maybe you could give us a list of some of these infections, um, and then we can delve into each one of those a little bit deeper. So yeah, uh, could you just give us a general list of some of these infections? Sure. So I guess, as you mentioned, I think most of us associate using drugs or injecting drugs, especially with HIV, but there's a lot of other different uh, viruses or bacteria that also commonly infect people who are injecting drugs. And so if we break them down by say like viruses and bacteria, first and viruses, Actually, much more common than HIV is probably hepatitis C. This is by far the, the most common viral infection in people who inject drugs. Uh, this is then followed by HIV and then another hepatitis virus, but hepatitis B. Um, and then in lower, lower number of cases is, is probably hepatitis A virus. There, there's been specific outbreaks uh, in, in the recent years of hepatitis A in people who um, inject drugs. So those are probably the most common and most important viruses that can cause infections in, in people who inject drugs. In bacterial infections, I like to talk about the syndromes the different bacteria cause more so than the specific bacteria. And the most common syndromes that bacteria might cause in, in somebody that who inject drugs are skin and soft tissue infections. So these are infections of the superficial or slightly deeper compartments of the skin and the soft tissues. And the, the two big ones are called abscesses. When we have conglomerations are kind of very walled off infections. And then the second one would be cellulitis when it's much more of a diffuse infections in the fat underlying the skin. Then we can get into much more deeper infections and bacteria in people who inject drugs can cause infections in almost any part of the body. But the, I guess the more common ones are endocarditis which are infections of the heart valves, infections of the vertebrae, which can either present as vertebral abscesses or osteomyelitis, so infections of the inner parts of the bones. And then they can also infect other places like the joints where they cause something like septic arthritis. And then something else when they can cause infections of the surroundings of the brain, which we call um, meningitis. So, so these are probably the more common syndromes. By far the most common bacteria that causes infections are the ones we call Staphylococcus aureus. 
Um, and then probably followed by another bacteria called Streptococcus or the different bacteria that form this group. In, in some rare cases, more less common cases, I won't say rare, there's other bacteria like Pseudomonas or E. coli or other anaerobic bacteria that can also cause infections in, in people who inject drugs. So, so those are kind of the big players uh, that can cause infections. Okay, thank you. So can we start with uh, the two most common viral infections, hepatitis C and HIV? Uh, how has the current drug epidemic affected the rates of HIV and hep C? Yeah, so I'll just preface in saying I think that it is important to understand that HIV rates in people who inject drugs had steadily been declining since the CDC reported yearly numbers for this group in the mid 2000s. Mm. Um, in the and, and this to me has been a marvel of public health, mm. and because we at that point we really didn't have specific interventions or biomedical interventions like we have now in the form of PrEP, a medication to prevent HIV. We didn't have that in those years. And just with basic common sense public health interventions, we've been able to reduce the number of new infections and in, in, in people who inject drugs year after year since the mid 2000s, really when the CDC kind of started providing this data uh, on a yearly basis. In the recent years, the number of new diagnoses have kind of plateaued and have hovered around 2,000 a year. And this is of the, the of close to the 30,000 new infections of the new HIV infections that we see a year. So of the 30,000, only about 2,000 a year um, are in people who inject uh, drugs. Hmm. Many of us uh, who do this work or who do this kind of research got really worried, especially because in, at least in 2015 and in several years after, we've actually seen blips or slight increases in the number of new infections, uh, which we hadn't seen before. Before 2015, it was just year-on-year -year success with yearly decreases. And the other big worrying part is that we've seen reports in both major cities um, like Seattle and Philadelphia of clusters of infections, but we've also seen these clusters in suburban or rural areas like Scott County, Indiana, or Lowell and Lawrence, uh, Massachusetts, among many other uh, locations. And then the other worrisome piece around HIV is that syphilis cases have been on the rise. And syphilis tends to act as a, the, the, the canary in the coal mine. And it's really kind of this first indication that new infections of HIV are coming. Mm. In relation to hepatitis C, this has been actually a, a much higher increase. Before, we used to think of hepatitis C as mainly a disease of baby boomers and especially associated to, say, blood transfusions when we didn't have really good means to screen our blood supply for this virus. 
before the 1980s, we didn't even know that hepatitis C existed. We used to call the disease hepatitis non-A, non-B. But since its discovery and since we have a reliable essay, we now screen potential blood donors for this disease. So our blood supply is very safe from it. And so going into the 1990s and 2000s, early 2000s, the number of new hepatitis C infections had plummeted and they were actually somewhat rare. However, now with the, with the current drug use epidemic or injection drug use epidemic, we've seen at least a threefold increase in new hepatitis C infections. And this is especially common um, in young individuals. Aside from sharing needles, um, are there other reasons why substance use might prov- um, sorry, promote the spread of HIV or hepatitis or make these illnesses worse? Like, is there something about the substances themselves that affects viral rep- replication or their ability to spread? Yeah. So, so in people who use or inject drugs, th- there's two pathways to acquire um, these viral infections. We, we, we have to re- remember for viral infections, you, you have to get them from somebody else. Mm. The bacterial infections are a bit different. Bacterial infections might come from the bacteria that are living in your skin, and, on your skin, sorry. And then because of, of breaking this anatomical barrier, we can get those bacteria into places that they shouldn't be. With viruses, we just have to remember again that they have to come from somebody else, right? So somebody has to transmit them to us. And there's two main vectors of transmission. One is through sharing needles uh, with somebody or other drug paraphernalia, like the, the cotton, the cooker, the syringe. So sharing these uh, with somebody who has that infection. Mm. So that's one way. Or the other way is from having sexual activity with a person who has this infection. So, so those are the two main ways. However, substance use in itself has other disorganizing features, right, that can lead to behavioral issues that then lead us to get these infections or those behavior, it, it leads us to do those behaviors that we actually might well and know that we shouldn't be doing or we might know that they're at high risk for giving us one of these infections. But while we're using drugs, because of the behavioral disorganization and disinhibition, we might say, well, I'll take on that risk, or we might not even think of that risk and do the behavior, right? Yeah. So, so that's one aspect. And then there actually is a lot of budding research into figuring out if the the drugs in themselves cause people to have a higher risk if they in some way depress people's immunity or make it more likely for where we're trying to transmit that particular virus for that transmission to actually be successful. Mm. I, I, I will remind people that when you do have contact with somebody who has the infection, it's not a slam dunk that you actually will get the infection, right? So it doesn't mean that if you have sex 
with somebody who has HIV, then you're, you have a hundred percent chance of getting HIV. But we do think that under the influence of certain uh, substances, well, that risk might be increased. And then the last factor that I'll say that increases people's chance of transmitting or acquiring an infection while using drugs is the effect that substance use has on people's ability to take medications. Hmm. So let's say somebody who is using drugs and actually has gone to a doctor and has received something called PrEP, the use of drugs might make it so that you're less likely to take your PrEP Mm -hmm. to prevent yourself from getting HIV. Or if you already have HIV and you're taking a medication to treat your HIV, well, the drugs might might be a barrier to you actually taking your medication. And then if you're not taking your medication, then your viral load increases. As your viral load increases, your chances of transmitting the virus to another person is going to increase. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And the research on like how substances might, you know, depress immunity or increase the chances of contracting the infection um, sound really interesting. So thanks for um, explaining that. In general terms, um, how do we treat HIV and hepatitis C in patients with substance use disorders? Well, really, there's no difference to the treatment of these both diseases if you have a substance use disorder or you don't. Everybody should qualify for the same medications. Uh, We now have great medications to treat both hepatitis C and HIV. For hepatitis C, I think it's one of the marvels of science that we can say Mm -hmm. in 2022, or sorry, 2023 now, that we can actually cure somebody in as little as eight weeks. We can cure them from hepatitis C and all of the complications of hepatitis C like cirrhosis or liver uh, cancer. So with one pill once a day for eight weeks, we can cure you of your hepatitis C. And I think that's just fantastic. With HIV, we can't cure somebody, but we can treat their infection very effectively with medications that are way different from what we've ever seen in the movies or on TV. Now medications for treating HIV are one pill once a day, very few side effects, very well tolerated. um, And people can go on living their normal lives. I will say with treatment, uh, alluding kind of to the previous question, there's a new concept out or been out for the last few years related to HIV treatment is that the, the concept is this of you equals you. So this means that you means undetectable equals you, which is untransmittable. So if you're living with HIV and you manage to control your viral load or the, the amount of HIV in your blood, you cannot transmit HIV to another person. Wow. We know this for certain with through the sexual route. It's less clear through the injection route, the, the route of sharing needles, 
but I, I really think that it's probably the case. We just don't have the studies yet to, to, to make this a firm statement. Hmm. Yeah, thanks. So understanding that substance use disorder treatment is often imp important to the treatment of HIV and hepatitis, do the medications for these viruses and for those for substance use interfere with each other? Not whatsoever. Okay. The treatments for opiate use disorder, in particular, alcohol use disorder, or even the new treatments that are being researched for methamphetamine use disorder, have no interaction with medications for HIV or hepatitis C. Or if they do have any interactions, we can change um, the hepatitis C medicines or the HIV medicines to ones that don't. So nowadays, there's no reason not to get both treated simultaneously. Great. Thank you. Um, that was very informative. So let's move on to some of the bacterial infections. And we'll start with the heart valve disease, infective endocarditis. Can you just talk a little bit about this illness? Yeah. So th this is one of my kind of more favorite topics. Uh, <laughs> infective endocarditis, as you mentioned, is an infection of the heart valves and the inner lining of the heart. If, you, if we remember the anatomy of the heart, we, we have to think about it as this pump. And this pump has cavities where blood goes in. And these cavities are limited by four different valves that hold the blood for a few milliseconds and then move when the pump contracts, pushes the blood out to either the next cavity or to other organs like the lung or other organs in the body like the brain, the kidneys, the GI tract, et cetera, et cetera. So what happens is when we inject drugs, as I mentioned before, we break down one of our most important anatomic barriers to infection, which is the skin. And when we break that barrier down, we risk the introduction of bacteria into deeper structures. Sometimes if a person's lucky enough, they'll only get the infection right at the skin. So in the fat around the skin, although they'll form an abscess, it's something local, it's something that, that we, we can definitely treat with either popping the abscess or with a short course of antibiotics. When the infection gets deeper, it can then travel into the bloodstream and these bacteria can make it into the heart and into the heart valves or into the inner lining of the heart. And if all the factors confluent and get it all right and you land these bacteria stick to those valves or stick to the inner lining of the heart, you then develop an infection. And this infection, especially on the valves, starts multiplying and those bacteria start saying grow into a ball uh, with other types of cells other inflammatory cells called a vegetation. Mm -hmm. And these vegetations start eroding at those heart valves. 
And so start eating up these valves. And so these valves, which before were these like perfect blockers between cavities or between the heart and other organs now become leaky. And these leaky valves can then lead to other complications like heart failure. On another side, these vegetations are, just think of them as little centimeter sized gunks of bacteria and other blood products. They can break off of those valves and then go to different parts of the body. So they can go into the lungs or they can go up into the brain, or they can go into the kidneys. So cause complications in these other places. So how common is this infection in the injection drug use population? And like, is it unique to this population? Um, so it's common enough, I, I would say, in kind of lay terms, it's common enough that people who inject drugs know about it or know somebody that has had it. Yeah. I won't say that everybody who injects drugs are going to get mm. if infective endocarditis. <laughs> uh, that's not true. And it's really hard to say, well, one out of 100 people who inject drugs gets endocarditis. I can't give you a statistic. Yeah. But the, the way I can say it, it, it's common enough that the population who injects drugs knows about it or knows somebody who's had it. And regarding your other question, is this something exclusive to people who inject drugs? It's not. Other people who can get infective endocarditis, so there's other groups like people who have congenital abnormalities of their heart valves have a higher susceptibility uh, to endocarditis. People who are in the hospital who have intravenous vascular devices, so what we call in the hospital like central lines or central catheters, or even some people who have certain types of pacemakers, they're at risk for um, having endocarditis. And then there's another group of people, especially in older, older men and women, they can get, say, spontaneous endocarditis from sometimes it's from bacteria that are living in their teeth, or sometimes it's from bacteria that are living in their gut that then get into the bloodstream and then land on their valves and cause this disease. Great. Thanks so much for explaining that. And how is infective endocarditis treated? Yeah. So, so there's two keys to the management of infective endocarditis. It is very typically a disease that needs at least initial treatment in the hospital. Um, I will just talk a little bit about signs and symptoms. People typically with endocarditis, the main symptom is that of fever. Mm. So the person who injects drugs has a fever, fever isn't going away. They've popped their, they might've popped their abscesses. Fevers are still ongoing, general malaise. It can turn into a more of a septic picture, which is then related with lowering of somebody's blood pressure or the impact into other organs like the kidney. So there's some degree of kidney failure or of somebody's mentation. So they might have 
an altered sensorium or, or what we call altered mental status. Mm. So when, when the confluence of these signs and symptoms and somebody recognizes it and somebody does the right move of going to the hospital, in the hospital kind of standard practice is that we draw blood cultures. And um, over the next few days, those blood cultures can demonstrate the presence of a bacteria in the blood. So we know somebody has bacteria. And again, the, the most common bacteria in this scenario is a bacteria called Staph aureus or Staphylococcus aureus. And so if we see this, the kind of next step is that because of the risk of somebody that has bacteremia, of having endocarditis, the next step is we get an ultrasound of their, of their heart called an echocardiogram. Yeah. And then if on that study, we see these signs, either a vegetation or a perforated valve or some kind of abscess around the valves of the heart, that makes the diagnosis of endocarditis. Once we make the diagnosis of endocarditis, the next step is figuring out does this person need surgery or not mm. and so so especially the more severe cases of endocarditis when the the vegetation is very large or there's a perforation or there's an abscess or there's a bacteria that might be very resistant to antibiotics mm. these are the cases or there's or, or there's a frank heart failure these are the cases that need um, antibiotic, uh, sorry, surgery, mm -hmm. all of the cases need antibiotics and this, the, the antibiotics are typically given for at least, um, six weeks. The, there's two other things that I'd like to just say here. One on the front side is the key piece of somebody going to the hospital when they start having symptoms. And there's a big problem here because people who inject drugs typically have faced multiple levels of stigma in their interactions with healthcare systems, yeah. either from the, the, the nurse, the medical assistant, the janitor, the doctor. At every level, people who inject drugs face stigma and face negative interactions. Mm -hmm. And so because of this history, they might be more hesitant to actually go to the hospital and actually seek care. And so this might delay the diagnosis and might make the disease more severe when they actually do present. Mm. If more severe, it, it increases their risk uh, of severe complications uh, or of mortality. The other piece I'd like to mention, there's two other pieces here. One is the piece on surgery. We have a huge issue, I think, going back to this stigma that people face of people who are uh, people who inject drugs actually getting offered surgery, even if it's indicated. Wow. So this is a, a problem that surgeons might not actually offer uh, surgical treatment based on certain biases that they might have, even when it's indicated. And so there's a lot of, there's been newspaper articles, there's been ethical reviews on, the, on this issue. Um, and then lastly, I'm going to say is that the antibiotics have traditionally been intravenous antibiotics. And so this poses a, a huge challenge for people who inject drugs. Typically, 
for, for say a person who doesn't inject drugs, if they need this long course of antibiotics, we would give them outpatient antibiotics. So we, we set up an intravenous line, um, they go home, they'll have a nurse come out to their home and give the antibiotics the first few days, their families are trained, um, or they're trained in, in how to administer these antibiotics um, at the home. However, because of the nature of injection drug use, people who inject drugs have been typically excluded from this practice. And so they're either forced to stay in hospitals for six weeks or to be transferred to uh, skilled rehab facilities or nursing homes um, or other types of medical facilities to complete their antibiotic courses. And, and, and this is really hard on people. And, and so we have people who, who use drugs not complete their antibiotics because they don't want to be stuck in the hospital or in mm. these kind of nursing homes or, or skilled nursing facilities to complete those, those antibiotics. Now, more recently, we, we have new evidence that oral antibiotics might be as effective as intravenous antibiotics, but this practice is still not fully implemented um, in all medical centers. So there's still a lot of challenges for people who inject drugs, even when they do get the diagnosis to get the appropriate care that they need. Yeah. Thank you for that great overview of infectious endocarditis and importantly, for highlighting the challenges people who inject drugs face when trying to get care. So um, would you mind talking a bit more about uh, some of the common skin and soft tissue infections um, that you mentioned uh, that are caused by injection drug use? Yeah. So, so, we, we have this big group called skin and soft tissue infections, but then we can break them down a little bit more into either abscesses or cellulitis. Abscesses are these kind of walled off balls of pus, which so inside of the ball of pus, there's bacteria, there's white blood cells trying to fight the bacteria, other inflammatory cells or necrotic cells that have kind of died in that battle. And the other type of infection, which is cellulitis, is more of a diffuse infection uh, of the skin and the, the, the soft tissues under the skin. The abscesses are typically treated with lancing the abscess. So the, the most important thing here is getting the pus under pressure, out of pressure. So the, the big ball of pus, we, we need to insert um, a scalpel, open up the ball of pus and push on it and express that pus out. And in a lot of people that's actually curative, but in, in it's kind of plus or minus, uh, a, a lot of people will additionally get antibiotics for cellulitis. We actually don't have, we don't have, we don't have a big ball of pus yeah. to, to poke at. We just have this kind of diffuse infection. So the treatment here is exclusively um, antibiotics. And typically antibiotic courses for cellulitis or an abscess will go anywhere from five to seven days mm. and typically can be of oral type of antibiotics. Again, the, the most common types of bacteria that cause these two types of infections are Staph aureus and then uh, another group of bacteria called Streptococci. So, and these both are what we call gram positive um, organisms, if you want to remember your biology classes. <laughs> um, there's another problem, uh, another infection I'll, I'll touch briefly into 
and this is the one that people will hear about as like the the flesh eating bacteria. <laughs> we call it necrotizing fasciitis. And this is when the infection is actually a little bit deeper in the tissues called fascias that are surrounding muscles. So the, these get very uh, inflamed and cause a very severe reaction that can rapidly lead to somebody going into sepsis, septic shock, and into death. Uh, necrotizing fasciitis is a surgical disease. People need to go to the operating room emergently to get the tissues debrided. And then they also need um, antibiotics on top of that. Thank you. Let's move on to vertebral osteomyelitis. So how does this occur? So, so s- similar pathophysiology to that of infective endocarditis. So bacteria that are living on our skin get into the bloodstream. Uh, think of the bloodstream as this like massive highway inside of our bodies that go pretty much to every different organ or city. And for whatever reason, these bacteria, instead of say landing on the heart valves, they'll land on the vertebra and either infect the inner compartments of the bone or can infect the discs or cause abscesses around the vertebra, and in this case, vertebral osteomyelitis. The big concerning part is especially is if the infection grows inside in towards the spinal column, this can then affect the nerves and then cause other complications like paralysis, Mm. uh, amongst others. Just going on to the treatment of this, uh, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but it's again, either surgery or antibiotics with surgery or alone. If the infection is a is like abutting the spinal canal, or if it's very large, then we typically need to do some kind of surgical procedure. If it doesn't have these characteristics, we might get lucky and can be able to cure it with antibiotics alone. The only thing here is that similar of, to that of the heart valve infection is that we need long courses antibiotics, which are typically at least six weeks. Okay. Thank you. Um, So then septic arthritis, uh, where I guess these bacteria now attack the joints. Can you just tell us a bit about this infection and how we treat it and what happens if we don't treat it? I I think you've graduated infectious diseases. I think you've got it. (laughs) Um, So um, pretty similar here again, instead of landing on, on the heart valves or bones, now they, they specifically infect the joints. So this can be anywhere from shoulder joints, knee joints, joints of the hands. And so these infections, again, similarly might require to go to the operating room to have what we call a joint washout and might need other corrective surgery. And then courses of antibiotics here that they actually don't need to be as long they can go anywhere from three to four weeks. Thank you. And finally, last infection, meningitis. Um, so what organisms cause this? And are they different from typical meningitis organisms? Yeah, uh, great question. So, so meningitis definitely happens in, in people who inject drugs. 
similar pathophysiology, either that from direct extension from a skin and soft tissue source, or it also happens commonly after having infective endocarditis, these vegetations flick off the valves on the left side of the heart and then go up into the, the central nervous system, infecting the, the surroundings of the heart and causing meningitis or other um, CNS manifestations. They are typically different from that of the general population um, having meningitis. The general population having meningitis, the bacteria that cause meningitis can be different based on age. Say like young babies can have group B streptococci or E. coli, whereas adolescents might have, say, like meningococcal meningitis. Sounds a bit redundant, mm -hmm. uh, but it is a thing. It's a specific bacteria that causes meningitis uh, that certain like college-age kids might get a vaccine for or even younger groups. Older groups might have meningitis from, say, pneumococcus, which can be a common cause of, of meningitis. And then older groups can have meningitis for something called like something like listeria. But in people who inject drugs, the flora goes back to that flora of skin and soft tissue infections, mm. especially staph aureus and streptococci. Yeah, thank you. Um, so that is quite a list of problems, unfortunately. So um, what are some of the ways that we can prevent these infections? Yeah, that, this is the important part, right? How, how do we avoid them? The simple but not easy answer is, well, stop using drugs, right? But okay. that might not be the kind of place where a certain person might be. So that's not a sufficient answer. One way is if you're actively using substances, try to use them in the safest way possible. Engage with your syringe services program, go to classes on safe injecting practices, clean injecting practices. So always, always, always use a new syringe, never a shared syringe, never reuse a syringe. Every time you inject, make sure that you're doing proper antisepsis. So you're cleaning off the area of the skin where you're going to be injecting. Make sure that once you retire the needle, you clean off the skin as well. Don't inject into places that are actively inflamed or actively might have an infection. Uh, so, so those are a few common ones to avoid uh, the kind of bacterial infections. With the viral infections, we have to remember that those we get from other people. So the, the key part here is don't ever share needles. So if you're going to inject, always use a, a new needle, always use new paraphernalia, never share that paraphernalia. So, so that's how to prevent sharing, acquisition of, of viruses through sharing. And then with sexual transmission, of course, try to be in a monogamous relationship. If this is not possible, there's other, there's safe sex kits, use lube, condoms. If 
these are not within a person's pleasures, then there's always PrEP, uh, so a medication to prevent HIV. And we take this one pill once a day, or you can even take it, there's a, a different form of taking PrEP, which is called on-demand PrEP. So you only take the PrEP when you think you're going to have an encounter with the virus. So if you're going to say go out clubbing on Saturday, you start taking that the day of and for two days after. And then the other is to be very engaged in preventative health measures. So go to your doctor, get frequent STD checks or HIV checks or hepatitis C checks if you're engaging in at-risk behavior. Everybody should have this at least once in their life. And if they're continuing to engage in high-risk behavior, then this should be at least yearly or in certain people even as frequent as every three months. So that if you do acquire an infection, we can treat it as early as we can and we can prevent the spread to other people. And then lastly, I'll say for people who already have these infections, it's get treatment. Mm. We have curative treatments for hepatitis C. We have curative treatments for all of these bacterial infections that I talked about. And HIV is completely treatable. Mm. All of these treatments can be as confidential as you want them to be. Doctors don't need to disclose to anybody else or they can disclose. I find that people who are able to involve their friends and family into their treatment are typically more successful. But if uh, that's not what you want to do for many reasons that are quite understandable, that's fine as well. And we could not disclose and we can keep treatment confidential. Yes. Uh, thank you for discussing those strategies. So on a more personal note, um, how did you become interested in this field? Uh, yeah, so I'm actually from Tijuana, Mexico, mm -hmm. and I, I, I did everything kindergarten through medical school there. And I think as a medical student, I was always very wishy-washy and <laughs> kind of every next new semester, I chose a new specialty and mm -hmm. something knew that I desired and, and something totally different, right? And it wasn't till the end of my medical schooling that I actually decided that I wanted to move to the United States. And so as part of that, I enrolled in a, in a master's program at UCSD, which was across the border. And as part of that program, I needed to figure out a, a research project. Mm. And I had no idea, really had no clue. I was just struggling and figuring it out. And just out of serendipity, out of talking to the right people, and not even like it wasn't a thing that I was like, that I, I mentioned this to this person with an objective of getting a project. I was just kind of in passing talking to this person. And this person said, oh, yeah, I think you should talk to my friend at UCSD. He's got a project of mine that we'd love somebody to analyze if you want to do that. Okay. So, so I reached out. I, I went to meet with, with this professor at UCSD. By the time I left their office, I had a job in, in, in Tijuana at a free clinic. I had possibilities of a new grant uh, working in the field of HIV. I had no idea that that meeting had just changed my life and had just given me a new career path. Hmm. So I started working in this free clinic 
supervising medical students from San Diego and from Tijuana that were providing free care to, to people in the area. And, and this area is called La Zona Norte, which is a is an area of Tijuana where sex work, drug use is somewhat quasi-legal. And so there's a lot of female sex workers. There's a lot of people who inject drugs. Uh, there's a lot of people who have been recently deported from the United States. And there's a lot of uh, poverty, right? Yeah. And, and a lot of just vulnerable people. And so I became their doctor, essentially. And I just started hearing their stories and just started understanding that these were just human beings like you and yeah. me and that had challenges in, in a, like a, a click of fingers all of a sudden had their worlds taking away from them and are now in living in the, the Tijuana riverbed yeah. and now sh shooting up meth and heroin, right. And, and really having nothing or nobody willing to help them. So that kind of became my career mission. Thank you for sharing that really inspiring story. And oh, of course, um, interestingly enough, I actually came to a similar realization when I first started this podcast. So, um, you know, I, I had really different views of people with addiction. So um, I'm really appreciative for you and what you do. Um, since you work at the intersection of infectious disease and substance use, do you think it would be helpful to have an infectious disease subspecialty uh, specifically devoted to the care of patients with substance use disorders, uh, since they have like unique infections and circumstances? A hundred percent. I think it's actually already starting. There are some co-located programs across the country. The one that comes to mind is the one at Boston University, Boston Medical Center. And so, so it is a budding program. We do understand. It's quite sad the way our medical system is set up and our medical training is set up is that we create uber specialized health providers that tend to be very siloed. And so the infectious disease doctor wants to treat infections and the addiction doctor wants to treat addictions and the heart doctor wants to treat hearts and so on and so forth. And so we've lost really, in my opinion, these kind of docs that can manage multiple different diseases. Mm -hmm. I, I really feel that the generalist practice has become a lot referral based mm -hmm. and you go to your generalist and they manage a lot of your problems, but a lot of your problems are also referred to the subspecialties. And just imagine for somebody who's using drugs who might be struggling with homelessness, has limited transportation. You go see Dr. Juan and he's referred you to three different doctors because you need to be managing your HIV, uh, your addiction and that, and you need to see an orthopedist because you have a problem in your left knee. What is the probability of you actually seeing all of these three doctors, right? Yeah. So the, the, this kind of siloed nature of our health care system, I think, fails at this vulnerable population, especially. 
it definitely works probably for the majority. There's a lot of people who manage this and can go to multiple doctor's appointments and, and do all of this just fine. But I think for our most vulnerable, it's definitely failing them. And one solution is, I think more so than just co-locating services where you have the infectious disease doctor, the addiction doctor, which are different people at the same location. I really think that we need people that can manage these multiple diseases in one visit. Mm. Um, you, you, because these, these folks, these people are, are people who inject drugs. The moments that they will engage in the healthcare system are few and far between. And the moment we lose them or the moment they leave us, we, we might have lost them, right? Yeah. And, and we might have lost the chance to really help them. Yeah, that makes sense. So thank you for uh, sharing that explanation. Um, and finally, uh, is there anything else that you would like to add? Um, no, I mean, to anybody out there who's listening, who's suffering through these diseases, just keep getting help. Just keep trying and keep reaching out. Look, there are a lot of times that you try and you don't succeed and you feel like this is a setback and you'll never succeed, but just keep trying. It might be you're just seeing the wrong doctor. You're seeing the wrong healthcare professional. It's not that time in your life, but just keep trying and you'll get there. Um, thank you for sharing that inspiring message. And thank you again for speaking with us about this fascinating topic. This is a really great, interesting overview of the various infections associated with IV drug, drug use. Sorry, um, And I'd love to talk to you more about this in the future. <laughs>